as today we finish our series from self-help to God's help, going through the chart that is on the screen and is also on the opposite page from each lesson, including this one, Lesson 9, in your notes. And I'll remind you of what that chart represents in just a bit. But before we get started with this last lesson, let me uh, remind you of some things that are happening, and there are lots of things happening primarily because of this renovation project that we have going. So you see that uh, we took the ugly floor that we've had for 10 months that we've been in this building and the tile out of here this week, and now we have an ugly floor that is of a different substance. But it's our desire to replace it with something better looking. And that matches the other half that is in process, as you see when you pull in. But what that means for us is, uh, schedule-wise, we have one Sunday, next Sunday, left to meet in here. And then the four weeks of January, we're going to meet off-site while the construction types finish their, finish their work. So next Sunday in here, same schedule as uh, usual. But then the following Sunday, January 5th, we will meet at the Woodhaven Community Center, and we will meet there for the three Sundays following that. So January 5 and 12 and 19 and 26, those four Sundays, all at Woodhaven Community Center. Now, we have met over the years prior to getting this building at about 25 different places for different functions, uh, not on Sundays or Wednesdays. We've had several of those. But for dinners and special events, we've, we've rented about 25 different places. So we have been at the Brownstown Community Center. We've been at the Westfield Activity Center. We've been at the Woodhaven Community Center. Uh, we've been at Summit uh, Charter School. We've been at a bunch of places. So it can get confusing as to which community center is which. So it's the Woodhaven Community Center, and it's on Hall Road at uh, West Road. It is right next to the Woodhaven Police Station. So not the Brownstown Community Center that's on Telegraph and King, Woodhaven Community Center on Hall Road near West, okay? Now, did I say it's right next to the police station? Which means uh, if you have a criminal record, be careful as you drive by, okay? Even if you don't have a criminal record, be careful as you drive by because Hall Road is 25 miles an hour through there. I know this by experience. Uh, I, I have witnessed to a couple of cops over the years on, on Hall Road. And uh, so I, kn I know that by experience, as I say. So be careful when you, when you pull in there, but it's just uh, next door to the, the police station. And we will only have one service each of those four Sundays. So we will not have this hour. We will not have our Sunday school hour. We'll just have our worship service. It'll be at 1030. So one service at 1030 to about, uh, to about 1145, and then we will be done on each of those, those four Sundays. Uh, we will have children's church, our kindergarten through fifth grade children's church. So we have a second room rented there for that. And we also have another room uh, for our nursery and toddlers. So if you have nursery toddler age children, we'll have a spot for them. The bad news is the place only has three rooms. So it has the room where we'll meet for worship, it has the room where the children will meet for their worship, and then it has one room for the nursery and toddlers. So if you're volunteering during one or more of those weeks, you will have, you will have them in together. It's a good-sized room, 
But nonetheless, I'm sure that will add to some of the mayhem that uh, goes on in the nursery and toddler. But it's the best we could do to find a place that was available all four of the Sundays. We had several places that were available, one or, or more, but not all four. That was the only one that was available all four and came close to having the space that we needed. Okay, So it'll work out fine. Again, thanks in advance for your indulgence uh, with all of this, the mess here and then the move there. But the plan is then for us to be able to move back in here on February 2nd and have our first service in the expanded facility then. So keep praying about that. Next week, we will have our regular schedule, 9.30 worship, 11 o'clock for our Sunday School Discovering God Hour. And we will have finished this series at that point. And so I get to just talk next week about whatever I want to get off my chest next week because we're not in the middle of a series. And then when we come back on February 2nd, we'll start a new Discovering God series. I'm trying to come up with a name for it, but the gist of it is uh, is to supply uh, everybody in our church who wants it with resources for you to uh, advance in your Christian walk and uh, give you uh, the resources and how to use them uh, in various areas of your Christian walk. Because in 2014, I would love nothing more than to be able to see uh, a large number of people in our church advance in spiritual maturity, and we want to give you tools and ways to do that. So that's what the the series will start on February 2nd will be about. And then uh, at Easter, which is in April, we'll have, of course, our Easter service. We're planning a Good Friday service as well. We've never been able to do that because we've never had a facility. But then the following week is when we, Lord willing, will have our grand opening to the community. And we're not doing it Easter weekend because the truth is you get the Easter crowd on Easter without even advertising anything. They just show up. But when they show up, we want to invite them the next weekend to the things that we will be doing here. And I say weekend because we're planning a Saturday full of activities, a Sunday where we can have an open house where people can actually come in and see the facility once it's completed and so on. So that'll be an exciting weekend for us. That'll be the weekend following Easter. So that gives you a little bit of long-range view of some of the stuff that's coming up. Today, we want to finish our series from self-help to God's help. And it is based on a book called How People Change. And the book uses this four-step approach to an overview of life and change from God's perspective. The Bible, in a summary form, teaches these four components to life and the process of of change in our lives. And those four components you see on that chart. You can see them on your page if you have that as, as well or on the screen. But heat up at the top is about the circumstances of the heat of life. The prophet Jeremiah compares life and its difficulties to uh, heat in a a wilderness and the effect that that can have on on us, symbolized in Jeremiah's language by by trees that either wither or flourish. But there's the, the heat of life, and that's just the circumstances you're in, and all of them are different for us, but please remember, dear friend, that we all have them, and you're not the only one who has difficult circumstances. And I don't mean to minimize those that you do have, but we do tend to think that our circumstances are are unique. And there is so much humanity, there is so much fallenness, there is such an array of circumstances that you are not alone in whatever it is or whatever things there are that comprise the heat of your life, the situations, the circumstances. We all have them. And that's what's represented at the top center of the chart. And we are all acting and reacting in the midst of those circumstances. So I have the heat, you have the heat, but then I react 
to it. Perhaps I've contributed to it. Maybe I created it, or I'm contributing to making it worse by the way I react to it, even though I didn't create it. And that, then, is the right side of the chart, the thorns. Because if I react in a sinful way, in an unhealthy way, then it's going to produce ill consequences for me and others. And that's what's represented by that uh, cactus, no fruit. But you see, the root of that is at the bottom. It's the heart that I bring to the heat, the circumstances, the situation. And you see the negative there. If I bring a negative sinful heart to my situation, it will produce that kind of, that kind of fruit, dead fruit, and, 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 and harmful fruit. So the heart needs to be changed. And how is the heart changed? Well, from the Bible's perspective, it is changed by an understanding of my relationship with God because of Jesus, which is centered upon the person and work of Jesus on, on the cross. And so that's at the bottom center, and that's the third component, the cross. And as I consider and apply my identity and my potential, those two things, my identity in Christ and the potential that I now have because of Christ for change, then my heart is, is changed. I bring a new heart to the same situations. Notice, a new heart to the same situations. It's not necessarily that the situation changes. But my approach to it has changed radically. And because my approach to it, you see the root now, I'm bringing a Christ-centered heart to the situation. It now produces a fruit. And the consequences are, are better for me, better for those uh, around me. Those around me may not change. I can't control what they do. But I can be in the process of change if I belong to Christ such that I bring a different heart to the same circumstances. Now, I'll just add that very often, when I bring a different heart to the circumstances, it has a positive effect on those who are in relationship with me. Sometimes they don't change at all. Sometimes they're absolutely refused to do that. But very often it has a positive effect. And so if Christ is now shaping my relationships, then instead of sitting back and waiting and saying, when you get it together, let me know. As you get it together, that is, you're maturing because you're applying this new identity and new potential you have because of the, cause, the cross of Christ. As you do that, it's amazing to see the effect, the positive effect it has on other people. But so often we don't see that happen because we are saying, you're the one who's at fault, you fix it, then let me know. And then when you let me know, then perhaps we can move forward. And God is calling you to be involved in the change process yourself, quite apart from what anyone else does, and then see how he works in the hearts of others as a result of that. So that is the four uh, components of change in the Christian life from a biblical perspective, from God's perspective. We have the heat of life. We have the thorns that result from a sinful heart we bring to those circumstances. We have the cross that's designed to change us from the inside out as we apply our new identity and our new potential. And then as a result of that, we bring a different heart to those circumstances and we produce new and surprising fruit, which is the title of Lesson 9, New and Surprising Fruit. So, Paul Tripp, who wrote uh, the book on which this is based, How, to, How People Change, asked the question, have you ever been 
tempted to think that uh, change simply can't happen for you, that the principles and commands of Scripture don't really work in the real world. So you might say things like, I know that a soft answer turns away wrath, but whoever wrote that doesn't have my kids. Or if I turn the other cheek, people are going to take advantage of me. So I have to take matters into my own hands. I've tried my best to forgive, but whenever I see her, I'm flooded with memories of what she did to me. I know, I know the Bible says God's grace is most powerful in weakness, but in my moments of weakness... I just feel weak. I tried being a servant. Now people always expect me to be the one who gives. How can I love my enemies if I can hardly love my friends and family? I know I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ loved the church, but she drives me crazy. It seems impossible to be kind to a teenager who's so rude. It's very hard to treat my boss with respect when he cuts down everyone who works for him. It's difficult to stay committed to a church that has never recognized my gifts for ministry, and and on it goes. Now, if we're honest, we've said those kinds of things or we've thought those those kinds of things. The Bible is very realistic about the difficulties that that we face and our tendencies toward fear and complacency and, and unbelief. And so it has to begin with us being honest about ourselves and about the world that we we live in. The Bible doesn't coat that in any way, that indeed we live in a world of injustice, a world of bondage to sin, of violence, of corruption, of relationships that are shattered, a decaying creation. I mean, stuff just breaks and it makes life difficulty because creation is is decaying, Romans chapter 8. And so the Bible's realistic about that, but it's also very blunt when it talks about the temptations that we have in our circumstances, in our heat, both in the blessings that we have and in the trials that we face. And we say in the blessings that we have, the truth is plenty, having a good, a good deal that has been granted to us can be a source of struggle as much as being in need. But most of all, you know, the Bible's realistic about that, but most of all, the Bible is shocking in the amount of hope that it gives to its children, to God's children. The Bible tells us that God's people can be like trees that are being continually fed by streams of living water, continually being renewed and continually flourishing and and growing. So given the trials and the temptations of life, we'd expect God to describe us as parched earth, withered plants, but instead... God tells us about an oasis of grace that's in the midst of the heat, in the midst of the desert. And so we are tempted, and I'm guessing some of you have been tempted, even as we've gone through this series, to say, you know, that all sounds right. In fact, I'm convinced it is right. But it just doesn't work for me. Somehow I'm the exception to God's rule. And as a result, we limit our expectations of what God can do. And so we say things like, because of what I've experienced, good things are not, just don't happen for me. God's rules might work for other people, but not for me. I've tried to keep His rules during this trial. It's just produced more frustration. I've fought and I've prayed to conquer this particular sin. I just can't beat it. I get all excited when I read the stories in Scripture, but what these people experienced just hasn't been my experience. 
And then when we assume that about ourselves, we tend to project that on other people. I mean, I'm not, gonna, I'm not changing. I fought and failed. It doesn't work for me. And I don't expect it's really going to work for other people either. So as I look at somebody else or I'm in relationship with somebody else who, who clearly needs some things changed, I lose hope that they're going to change because I don't see change happening in my life either. And so it becomes this downward spiral. So think of this story from the Bible. You've got a guy who is in charge of a powerful person, in charge of thousands, tens of thousands of people. But in his own home uh, and in his own, and in his own uh, business, in his own workplace, he has little respect and little power. And he's seen it diminishing over time. And he hasn't known why that's been happening. But come to find out, one of his sons has been eyeing his, his throne and working to undermine his authority in his home and in his kingdom. And this son has successfully turned a number of people against his father. Not only has he turned these people against his father, he finds out his son is plotting to kill him. And that's the story that many of you know from 2 Samuel 13 and 14. In, uh, of David and his son Absalom. And Absalom did those things, and Absalom is, is, is plotting to kill his, his own father. So much so that David finds himself hiding from his own son in a cave. And that's the heat of your life, then. First of all, do you feel any better about what's going on in your life? Okay. It's like, you know, I've got, I've got the worst stuff going on in the world. No, you, I'm telling you, no, you don't. And every time I think I've heard it all, somebody comes for counsel, and then I go, okay, now I've heard it all because of what they've gone through. So every time you think you've got the worst thing going on, and here's David living in this, this cave, hiding from his own son, who's plotting to kill. It's in the midst of that that David writes... Uh, Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. And we have Psalm 4 for you on the page. You see it on Lesson 9. Here's what he says in the midst of this. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 3, Psalm 4 are morning and evening psalms that David wrote while he was in the midst of this whole situation with his son Absalom. And you cannot help but be impressed by what you learn about David's heart and his behavior in the midst of this personally painful experience. 
Now just note some things about what David's saying there. I'm going to list some of those, but, but before I give the list, compare that list to your list or my list. In the midst of my heat, my difficulty, what kind of prayer do I have if I have a prayer at all? James chapter 4 says we have not because we ask not. And one of the reasons that we don't, we don't ask is because we're asking selfishly. In fact, it says when we do ask, we ask in order to indulge our own uh, self-centered desires. So we may not ask at all, but when you do ask from God, what are you asking for? And what are you asking, and, and what, are your, what do your prayers sound like? Here's what David is praying in the midst of this situation. What's it say about his heart? He doesn't run away from God. In the midst of the difficulty, he does not run away from God. Quite the contrary, he turns to God in the midst of the difficulty. He reminds himself of who he is, his identity as God's child. He examines his own heart. His son's trying to kill him. And he's examining his own heart. What else does David do in the midst of this? He worships God. He ministers. He serves other people. And he rests. He trusts. He's content in the fact that he is God's child. God knows what's happening and God will vindicate. And so as you think about David responding to his heat, his extreme heat that way, then think about how we tend to respond. Have you found yourself saying things like, you know, this guy is just superhuman, he's not real. But remember, David is the same guy now. He's responding this way in difficulty. But do you remember how he responded in a period of great power and blessing in his life? I mean, he was at the, he was at the top of his game as the king. And that's when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. So here's a guy who's living in the real world. In this particular circumstance of difficulty, he's reminded of all that he has learned and all that he knows about God, and he lays that out in Psalm 3 and 4. But David's not living in some magic world or some different world than the one you live, live in and, uh, and I live in. And I want you to notice something else. In Psalm 4, David is not talking about a number of things that you should be doing. Rather, he says, this is what God is doing in me. And so you should be saying that as well. That despite the fact that I'm in this circumstance and I can't see my way out and I don't know how I get out and I don't know how the thing changes because it involves at least one other person or some other people and to this point they have not shown themselves to be cooperative. I don't know how this thing's going to change. But I'm going to focus on God, and I know that God is at work, and, and I'm going to place my trust in, in Him. These things then are possible for me. The kind of thing that David writes about is possible for me because David's God is my God, and God has not changed. So Psalm 4 doesn't say, here's a bunch of stuff you should be doing. It's not a list of mechanical obedience. Start praying more, start reading your Bible more, hope that things then, then change because of that. If all we needed was information about how to do the right things, think about this, Jesus would never have had to come. He could just said, here's the list, do it. But we need, we need heart change then. 
And so the point is, God does, hear this, friends, more than just deliver us from the heat. He delivers us from ourselves so that we don't simply survive the heat, but rather we bear, actually bear good fruit. And so the Bible is saying that it is possible for someone who is a child of God and who has His Holy Spirit, and so who therefore has that identity and the potential that comes with that, it is possible then for family, in family difficulty for love to grow. Anybody here, I don't want to raise raised hands, anybody here having family difficulty? And the Bible is saying that love can grow in the midst of the pressure of that family difficulty. Or under the heat of being unappreciated as you sacrifice for other people, even in the midst of that, your perseverance in doing good can grow. If you're suffering physically, peace and faith can blossom. In the midst of deprivation, of want, giving can grow. Where thorns of greed and selfishness once flourished. Peace can live in the middle of financial disappointment. Humility can thrive in times of personal success. Joy can live under the burning sun of rejection. Hope can blossom in times of grief. All of these things are possible for God's people who have a relationship with Him and who have His Holy Spirit. We're going to keep going. Do you believe that? And I, I am afraid that there are too many people who believe it at 11 o'clock on Sunday, but not at 3 p.m. on Sunday. I mean, just maybe 1 p.m. on Sunday. Maybe by the time you drive out of the parking lot. Maybe you spend an hour in the parking lot because you're arguing and, and, you don't, and you can't even drive away. Okay? And too many people who believe it at 11 o'clock on Sunday, but certainly not on Monday, certainly not on Thursday. So ask yourself, friend, what was it like last week? What were you like last week? And what did it show that you really believed? Because that's where it shows up. Not when I say on Sunday morning, hey, you all believe this? Give me an amen. Okay? So do you really believe that's possible? Well, Jesus says it is. In John chapter 7, Jesus speaks of living water that flows from those who belong to Him. And He goes on to say that that living water is actually the Holy Spirit. So those who belong to Jesus have this potential for this kind of change because they have the living water of the Holy Spirit. So I'm living in this parched wilderness heat, whatever it looks like for you. And in the midst of that, you can be a tree that is flourishing because you have access to this regular flow of living water. That's what Jesus says. And what does is, what is this stream of water, this living water, produce? Well, it's found in Galatians 5 and Galatians 6. You all know there that you have the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22 and, and following... And in fact, we, we have that listed for you. At the bottom of Lesson 9, we've got Galatians, Galatians 6. Brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. 
But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted to carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. So on. Now this is chapter 6, following right on the heels of chapter 5, verse 22 and following, that tell you about the fruit of the Spirit. And then says those who are spiritual should serve other people in this way. So think about your relationships. Here's what you do. And when I say you, I mean me. Here's what we do. What we tend to do in our relationships when we're at odds with someone is we tend to think this. What do I need from that person? Or what do I want done to that person? What do I need from? Or what do I want done to? What do I need from this person in order for me to be able to obey God, in order for me to bring the right kind of attitude? What do I need from them? They're going to have to do something. They're going to have to get their act together. What do I need from them? Or I'm so ticked. Or forget ticked. I am so bitter that I become vengeful. And it's not just what I want now from this person. I want to see something done to this person. And we usually fall in one or both of those categories. I want to see something from you. Then we can talk about what I do and how I behave and my attitude. Or I want something done to you. There's too much water under the bridge, baby. Something's got to give. You need to pay. And what does the Lord say? Vengeance is. But some of you are in vengeance mode because you were first in bitterness mode, because you were first in angry mode, because you were first in the fruit of the sinful nature mode. So going forward again, you were self-indulgent. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. Galatians 5, 13 and 14 speaks about all these sins of self-indulgence. And because in your heart it was focused on me rather than on thee, rather than on God, and then in turn on others, because it was self-indulgent, it produces this ill fruit that's listed as the acts of the sinful nature in Galatians 5 rather than the fruit of the Spirit. And so it started there, focused on me. You didn't do what you were supposed to do for me. And now I'm angry. That anger morphs into bitterness, and that bitterness morphs into vengeance. And we're still married. I'm still stuck with this spouse that I want to see pay for what he or she did. But at least we're Christians. And at least we go to church. Forgive him or her? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you think you can just waltz in here and say, I'm sorry? And ask me to forgive you? 
uh-uh. You show me, then we'll talk. Do you see listed on your, on your page? Um, we have Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14. And then the acts of the sinful nature. And then goes in right into Galatians 6 and talks about serving other people. And that happens when the Holy Spirit is dominating your heart rather than self-indulgence that leads to the acts of the sinful nature. Now, it's not listed here for you, but I want to encourage you to jot this down and read it later. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 25. Matthew 18, 25 to 32. It's a parable of Jesus. You guys remember this. And Jesus uh, talks about a guy who owed the equivalent of millions of dollars to someone. And he begged for this person that he owed to forgive his debt. And Jesus says the man forgave him. The forgiven man went to someone who owed him the equivalent of a few dollars. And this person that owed the few dollars begged for forgiveness of the debt, but nothing doing. He grabbed him by the, by the throat. You're going to pay to the nth degree. You're going to pay every penny you owe. And then Jesus goes on to teach this lesson. If you will not forgive others, then God will not forgive you. In the, in the prayer that Jesus gave, the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those, forgive our debtors. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But then later, after that prayer, Jesus talks about this need for forgiveness. And he says there, if you do not forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought he already forgave me. Here's, what's, here's what Jesus is saying. If you don't have the capacity to forgive other people who have wronged you, it is evidence that you have never experienced the forgiveness that comes from God. To put it another way, you ain't saved. And I'm afraid we got lots of people who are church members who aren't saved. As evidenced by the fact that they will not forgive. You say, we, CBC, Community Bible Church, we believe the Bible. We are the family of God built on the Word of God, to the glory of God. Not us. And I'm not talking about, in particular, our church although this is the one I care most about for obvious reasons. I'm talking about our church is, but yeah, I'm talking about our church. And we've got people in this room who will not forgive day in and day out. And I'm saying to you, dear friend, dear, I trust brother and sister, heed this warning from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ that an unwillingness to forgive is a sign that I don't belong to him. Think about it. Ephesians 4.32. Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another as God in Christ has what? Forgiven you. Have you been forgiven and how much have you been forgiven for? That would be the millions of dollars and more. 
and the stuff that's been done to you is relative to what we've done to offend God, it is a relative few bucks. Wouldn't it be cool if people left this room saying, oh Lord God, thank you for convicting my heart so that I see the need to forgive. Forgive me for my lack of forgiveness. So, what will this fruit of the Spirit look like in your life? This new and surprising fruit. Let me give uh, a few things quickly. One is if I am living in light of my identity and my potential coming from the cross, then one, I'll live with personal integrity. I'll live with personal integrity. Here's what that means. I'll be honest. I'll be honest about myself. I'll be honest about my own struggles. I'll look at myself first. I can actually look at myself in the mirror of the Word of God and I can face how ugly it is. Why? Because I'm looking at it through the cross. And in the cross, I've been forgiven by Jesus, assuming I'm His child. And so now I can be honest about it. And I don't have to be defensive, and I don't have to win the battle, and I don't have to pile up more stuff about the other person so I can show that even though I've got my problems, they're worse than I am. I don't have to play that game. I can live with personal integrity, and I can say, this is me. This is what I bring to the table, and these are my problems, and thank you, Lord, for showing them to me because I want to excise them from my life. I want to kill them. I want to mortify them, and I want to grow in you. I can live with personal integrity. I can be honest because of the cross. And if I'm, if I'm willing to be honest now, I can also seek help. I can seek godly help because now... I can break down the barriers that act like I've got it together or it's not me or I don't really have a problem and I can seek help for it. I can express godly emotions about what's going on because I'm facing things honestly. So first, I'll live with personal integrity. Second, I'll let the cross shape my relationships. I'll let the cross shape my relationships. So, the Matthew 18, 25, and following, Ephesians 4, 32. God has forgiven me, so now I am someone who is willing to forgive, and I'm someone who's willing to ask for forgiveness. When the cross shapes my relationships, I respond to the sin and weaknesses of other people with grace. You know, if you, if you find yourself being critical, of regularly critical of other people, and you've got a list of the things those people should do that they're not, that they do that they shouldn't, if you find yourself like that, then you're not living with other people, recognizing your own limitations and sin, and thus expressing grace in your attitude, in your thoughts, and in your words toward them. And then thirdly, the cross will give purpose and direction to my words and my actions. If I'm going to live in the heat of life, in particular in my relationships, but my circumstances, then the cross is going to give purpose and direction to what I say. Now, what I say always begins with what I think. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says, Matthew 
12.34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what I first think is what comes out in my words. So I'm going to ponder this situation. I'm going to think about this person. I'm going to think about this circumstance in ways that have the cross at the center. And so it will enable me to be a person who seeks to make peace. It will enable me to be a person who speaks the truth because I can love people more than need them. And so I can tell the truth in, in love. It will enable me to be a person who serves other people despite the difficulty because that's what Christ did on the cross and that's what the, Christ, what the cross models for us. It will enable me to be somebody who recognizes and develops and uses the gifts that He's given me for His glory and for the good of other people. I'm going to give you one illustration of how this was put in action in someone's life, and then we're done. But Paul Tripp uh, tells the story of a woman sitting across his desk uh, who had been counseling with him over a long period of time. She began counseling with him because her husband left her. She was uh, someone who had been in an affluent situation. Together, they had joined country clubs. They had a large house. They enjoyed a very good living. They had a large circle of friends who had a like uh, standard of living. He left her for someone else, and he left her without any, any of that. And she was devastated, as you might imagine. She came for counsel, and over time they went through this process. And God the Holy Spirit worked in her heart such that she was able to focus on what God was doing in her in the midst of that difficult circumstances, difficult circumstance, rather than what needed to be done to her husband. Rather than focus on what had been done to her, she was focusing on what God was doing in her. And as a result of that, this is what she says, I hope I don't ever have to go through that again. It's been harder than I ever imagined it would be. There were times when I wondered if God was there and I worried that I would not make it. Sometimes it seemed impossible to do what God says is right. And then he says she hesitated for a moment and said, but I'd go through it all again to get what God has given me. He has so completely changed me. It almost seems like the old Bettina, her name, was someone else. And then Paul Tripp goes on to say she was incarnating the truth that God doesn't simply cool the heat in our lives. He transforms us in the midst of it. And her story is your story and my story. That's what God does. And so I'm asking you, dear friends, don't just intellectually know this. Put this into practice now. As you do what David did in Psalm 4, read Psalm 4. He's in a cave hiding from his son who wants to kill him. Think about what Jesus did when he went to the cross for us. Betrayed, did nothing wrong. He's clearly the victim. But look at his attitude. Look at his actions. 
And think about how that all applies now to the heat of the relationships and situations you're in, okay? And by God's grace, by God's grace, Lord God, change the hearts of people and change the relationships that we are in to bring glory to yourself. Change marriages, heal marriages. I'm I'm praying right now. I'm asking Jesus to do that because I can't do it. I'll give you you guys my best shot at, at saying this is what God says, but I can't make it happen. Only God can make that happen. Let's pray that together then, okay? Let's bow. Father, I thank you that we come to you knowing that you hear, knowing that you care, knowing that you are active in the lives of your people. Oh, Lord, in the history of your people, it has often been hard to tell the difference between those who are and those who are not. How often, Lord, do we resort to the same tactics, the same attitudes, the same words and actions as the world? Lord, I confess that this is my tendency. I confess that I have failed in my thoughts and in my words and my relationships. So, Lord, I ask you to forgive me and help me, Lord, when I do that, not if. Help me to take the forgiveness that I have in you and to seek it from others and to grant it to others when required. Help me to be ready to do so because of the love, forgiveness, mercy that you've shown to me. I pray, Lord, that that would be the case for those here as well. May we be people who think about what's been given. Think about why you have placed us here, to be transformed into the image of Jesus, to be used as tools to see others transformed in your image as well. As a result of that, Lord, may we have then a radically different agenda. No longer what I can get. No longer what must be done to but rather, what can I do for? What can I do for my God and my Savior? What can I do for this other person, even this other person who has harmed me? Oh, Lord, effect that in our hearts, we ask you. My words certainly cannot do that. Only your Spirit can. But your Spirit can and does, and we thank you for that. So, Lord, may that happen in the hearts of those here, and may, as a result, it bear fruit, good fruit, in their lives and in their relationships and in their circumstances and in your church. We ask you, Lord Jesus, to go with us this week. Grant us safety. Grant us joy as we celebrate the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.